Great. Well, I've enjoyed being with you, with some of you tomorrow. Others of you, you know, might never see each other again until glory, but, uh, well, that's a bit bleak. No, it's not. <laughs> it's been great. I've enjoyed it. It's such a privilege to be a part of the brother and sisterhood, isn't it? with a, a message to live and die for. Some days are better than others. Um, one morning in Burundi, I'd had um, the squits all night. And I'd made umpteen trips to the toilet. And normally, it's quite common to have a power cut. And uh, it's quite common to have a, a water cut. But it's unusual to have them both together. And, um, and it had been a horrific night, and, uh, and it, it was just before dawn, and I went for the 17th trip to the toilet, and, and for some reason there was, you know, we don't have plastic bottles, we have glass bottles of Coke, or it was 7-Up, this one. And I was bare feet, and it was in the dark, and I was preparing a stool sample to go and show the, you know, the chemist or whatever to explain which kind of parasite I had and uh, as I sort of stumbled my way in the dark to the toilet bare feet I kicked this glass bottle over and it shattered everywhere and I was on the toilet and I did my stool sample and and then I looked down and I hadn't taken the, the lid off the <laughs> and uh, so there was I there was no water I couldn't find the tap glass everywhere on the floor. It was a truly crappy day. <laughs> yeah, had a few of those. And, uh, you know, metaphorically, I'm sure, you know, we have those days, don't we? We have those days. And uh, this evening I want to look at, if you want a title, it's Ministry in Perspective. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's very... Bible, meaty, uh, expositional style, a bit different uh, from, from this morning's. Uh, I, ministry, I don't really like it because it's such a religious word, but you know, it is the word in 4 verse 1 says, we have this ministry. The problem is, is that you might start thinking about ministers and that, so I'm not a minister, that no, we're all ministers in, in the sense that's being addressed here. So this message is for everyone, and I want us to have the right biblical perspective of what ministry is. So 4 verse 1, it says, we have therefore, uh, sorry, sorry, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now what is that ministry? If you want to look back, if you've got your Bibles, worth having your Bibles open if you've got them on your phones. Back in chapter 3 verse 6, it says, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So that's what we were ministers of, we, of this new covenant. Verse 7 to 10, it talks about that it's so much more glorious than the old covenant. You know, Moses, his radiant face that was veiled and stuff like that. And this, is, this new covenant is so much greater. It's a covenant of the Spirit. And in verse 17, it's where the Spirit of the Lord is there, is freedom. And so verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then we start in with 4 verse 1. So, if we're going to be effective uh, ministers of the gospel, we need the right perspective. And uh, three things. 
from these verses from chapter 4, and we'll look through it, but we need a realistic perspective, we need a durable perspective, and we need an eternal perspective. So first of all, we need a realistic perspective. Therefore, 4 verse 1, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Flip down to verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Two times, you know, it's sort of top and tailed, if you like. We don't, why do you say don't lose heart? It's because it's so easy to lose heart. And I don't know where you're, you're at at the beginning of the day, but maybe you came knackered and tempted to lose heart. But Paul is saying, don't lose heart. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have access to that grace. He's given us this ministry. We do not lose heart. I look down to verse 7. It's lovely, isn't it? We have this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing treasure is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. On to verse 16. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Our story are achieving for us an eternal reward that far outweighs them all. So, we do not fix our eyes on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I mean, they're great verses, aren't they? But we need that realistic perspective. It's very tempting to lose heart. Verses 8 and 9, you know, we're hard-pressed on every side. Verse 10 says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Verse 11, we, we, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. You know, that always on every side, you know, it's underlining the extent and intensity of uh, our experience and our suffering potentially in him. A couple of chapters on, verse, uh, chapter 6, 4 to 10, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors known, yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. You know, he's, he's giving the Corinthians, who, who had loads of spiritual gifts, didn't they? Uh, and surely, you know, well, mismanaged those and maybe overemphasized that. And he was saying, you know, it is going to be costly, this. You've got to knuckle down and, and embrace the reality of it. I love that at the end, having nothing yet possessing everything. It makes me think of a friend of mine who in Burundi saw a, a man with, with his um, empty bowl praying in his rags, this dirty old man in an internally displaced camp. And she went over and sat next to him. She didn't know anything about him. And she said, what's your story, old man, Umutama? It's a respectful turn, old man, Umutama. What's your story, Umutama? And he told her how he'd watched his wife and kids hacked to death. And he'd seen his house burnt down. And he was in his 80s and he'd walked six days to get to that refugee camp, that internally displaced camp. And all he was in his stinking rags, that was all he was, nothing. And at the end of this horrific story of woe, he turned to her and he said, Madame Missionnaire, I never realized that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. <laughs> Having nothing yet possessing everything, he's now free. 
with Jesus. Paul, you know, a few chapters on, another five chapters on, chapter 11, 23 to 27, you know, he feels like he has got to defend himself because of people being more spiritual than him. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night at sea. You know, you know this, you know, it goes on. Taught labor, toiled, hunger, thirst cold, naked. So we need a realistic perspective that it's going to be tough. It's also that, we, that we're called to obedience and faithfulness, not necessarily fruitfulness. So if you look down at verse 4, it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, when, when the, those of you went out on the streets today, you know, you weren't call, we weren't called to convert those people. We were called to be obedient in sharing, weren't we? Which is actually quite freeing. And that verse says, the, you know, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And, and surely we, we've experienced that with people where they just, they're so obviously blind. And it's got to be a supernatural work of God to, to, to get them to see. So, you know, feel that sense of call to obedience and faithfulness. And... and Hopefully, fruitfulness is part of the mix, but as a number of my friends who've toiled for decades in Islamic countries, you know, they, don't, they can't come back and say, you know, like I can say last summer we saw 16,000 people come to Jesus. They can't do that. That make them any different? No. Because in different contexts, fields are just less, less fruitful, aren't they? So it's going to be tough. We're called to obedience and faithfulness, not necessarily fruitfulness. Um, Another point would be God's amazing and we're not. You know, that's verses 7 to 15. God is amazing and we're not. You know, in those verses, he, God, Paul is comparing us as gospel ministers to a piece of just Palestinian pottery. You know, we just got this treasure, this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure is the glorious news of Christ, which he's talked about in verses 1 to 6. And jars of clay is actually earthenware vessels, ostrakinois, I'm not a Greek scholar, but ostrakinois skoiosin. The, the, the noun skoios refers to a vessel serving a specific purpose, so as a, a jug or a cup or a pan or a pot. And when used, a people carries a sense of implement or instrument. So to be God's vessel is to be his instrument in carrying out a specific service. In this case, he's talking about gospel ministry. And, and so we can't overlook the marvel of this, this picture and this statement by Paul, the gospel minister. We, we, you know, we're common vessels, you know, it's run-of-the-mill clay pots, fragile, easily broken, and yet God has entrusted the treasure of the gospel to, to this vessel. Just as the Palestinians stored their valuables in common clay pots. Why does God do this? Well, according to Paul, he does it to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He uses what is fragile and yet serviceable so that there may be no mistaking the origin of the gospel minister's power. You know, that the adjective all-surpassing is hyperbole, you know, when we get hyperbole. It stresses the extraordinary quality or extent of, of something. So there's something here is all-surpassing power, dynamis, dynamite, that is in the gospel message. So in, on May 18th, 1980, on Mount St. Helens in the Cascade Range of Washington, you know, it exploded with a stunning demonstration of nature's power. So the, the explosion ripped 400 meters off the top of this mountain. It leveled 50 meter Douglas fir trees 17 miles away. You know, extraordinary power. And we stand in awe of such force, and yet we forget that, you know, it's the dynamis, the power of the gospel that's been given to each one of us. 
And so we need that realistic power, you know, these subpoints. It's going to be tough. We're called to obedience and faithfulness, not necessarily fruitfulness. God's amazing. We're not just jars of clay. And, and the fourth subpoint there is that it's a, it's a long process. So verse 18 of chapter 3, the one before, and we all who with unveiled faces always reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed transformed into his likeness which come, with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But that's a process. That's a process all, all the way to glory, isn't it? There are a bunch of ladies in Kentucky doing a Bible study on uh, Malachi in the third week. It was chapter 3 and in verse 3. It says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And the ladies discussed that picture and, all right, so God's a silversmith, you know, with the silver in the furnace being purified and he will sit as a refiner and purify of silver. Okay, so burning off the dross, probably not a very pleasant experience. But anyway, so they discussed that. One lady particularly wanted to get the full import of that analogy. So the next day she, she went to a silversmith. She said, do you, you know, do you mind if I just watch you whilst you do it? And she watched him. She said, yeah, sure, come on in. And, uh, and after a while she said, yeah, but do you have to sit whilst the refining process is taking place? And he said, yes, ma'am, I have to sit the whole time with my eyes intently fixed on the furnace because if the refining process is exceeded by the slightest degree, then the silver will be damaged. And she thought, oh, well, that's lovely, isn't it? So, so God's got his eye on me. And I'm in there, and it is very painful, burning away the dross and impurities, but the aim is to produce something beautiful and of great worth and value and attraction. And he sat there, and he's watching it the whole time, that process taking place, all the that I might be going through right now. And he doesn't want, he won't let it be taken an insy-witsy bit, bit beyond what's right, because he doesn't want me, the silver, to be damaged. And so she left comforted, and she was just walking out, and he said, hang on, hang on. And he'd forgotten to tell her one thing. And that was that he only knew that the refining process was complete when he could see his image reflected in the silver. Isn't that great? Going through a hell of a time last night, uh, uh, right now, well, you know, in a sense, I can't say I'm going through a hell of a time, I'm going through a tough time, but, you know, some of you are going through a hell of a time, and that's, it's, it's tough, and you're just hanging in there by the skin of your teeth. Well, you know, you are being transformed from glory to glory, ever-increasing likeness. And that's a process for all of us unto glory, but hang on in there. It's worth it. We need to have a realistic perspective. I, you know, it's just so, some, some uh, branches of Christendom are so triumphalistic. And to me, it's long-term disastrous because you can't live. You can be, we are more than conquerors. I've written a book, We Are More Than Conquerors. That's Romans 8, verse 37. But, you know, the context is, well, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. But if you just said, come to Jesus and he'll take away all your problems and give you a blessed life and it'll be easy, then that's, that's a lie. It's a lie, isn't it? I mean, it's completely against what he actually said. For example, in John 16, verse 33, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That's a balanced gospel, holding it together. And various branches of Christian might uh, overemphasize one side to the detriment of the other. But no, we are more than conquerors. We are triumphant, but we're not triumphalistic. And we're not claiming there's going to be no trouble because Jesus said, no, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So let's have a realistic perspective. Secondly, let's have a, a durable perspective. Look down at verse 8 and 9. Yeah, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. 
That verb hard press means, you know, to, to press in hard against someone, or as we'd say today, to, to squeeze the life out of someone. Well, the term not crushed indicates that the pressure never got to the point where there was no escape or way out. So we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. The Greek word there is to pursue. And it's commonly used of, of, of tracking a prayer enemy. And Paul, he was pursued, wasn't he, from city to city by hostile Jews. But through it all, God never abandoned him. The idea here is that Paul, you know, God didn't leave Paul out to dry or in the lurch. No, he, he says he was struck down but not destroyed. You know, Paul wasn't just pursued by hostile Jews, but when they caught him, they, they stirred up trouble, didn't they? And he's probably thinking of that time where he was, left, he was stoned in Lystra, wasn't he? Left outside the city for dead. Struck down but not destroyed. He, he lived. Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. As summed up in verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. We need a durable perspective. Listen to this, this stunning quote by uh, Oswald Chambers. God can never make me whine if I object to the fing fingers he uses to crush me. If God would only crush me with his fingers and say, now my son, my daughter, I'm going to make you broken bread and poured out wine in a particular way and everyone will know what I'm doing. Yeah, but, then, but when he uses someone who's not a Christian or someone I particularly dislike or some set of circumstances I said I would never submit to and begins to make these crushes, I object. I must never choose the scene of my martyrdom, nor must I choose the things God will use in order to make me broken bread and poured out wine. His own son did not choose. God chose for his son that he should have a devil in his company for three years. We say, I want angels. I want people, people better than myself. I want everything to be significantly from God. Otherwise, I cannot live the life or do the thing properly. I always, I always want to be guilt-edged. Well, let God do as he likes. If you are ever going to be wine to drink, you must be crushed. Grapes cannot be drunk. Grapes are only wine when they are crushed. I wonder what kind of coarse thumb and finger God has been using to squeeze you. And you've been like a marble and escaped. You're not ripe yet. And if God has squeezed you, the wine that came out would have been remarkably bitter. Let God go on with his crushing because it will work out his purpose in the end. <sighs> We need a durable perspective. Look at this young Zimbabwean martyr. And this is a bit of what he said, which is quite long. He says, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus and I must go till he comes and give till I drop and preach till all know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Well, may, brothers and sisters, our banners be clear. There's this lovely poem. It's 
called The Race by a guy called D.H. Grober. I don't know if you come across it. It goes like this. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They shout at me and plead. There's just too much against you now. This time you can't succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene. For just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race. Young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race or tie for first, if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son. And each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. They all, the whistle blew and off they flew, young hearts and hopes afire. To, to win and be the hero here was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, my dad will be so, pr so proud. But as he speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped, trying hard to catch himself. His arms flew every place, and amid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell, and with him hope he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. As he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. But so anxious to restore himself to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs, and he slipped and fell again. He wished then he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But amid the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face, that steady look that said again, get up and win the race. So up he jumped to run once more, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain these yards, he thought, I've got to move real fast. So exert, exerting everything he had, he regained eight and 10, but trying so hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Oh, defeat. He lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out, why try? I've lost, so what's the use, he said. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, whom soon he'd have to face. Get up. And the echo sounded low, get up and take your place. You were not made a failure here. Get up and win you at that race. With borrowed will, get up, it said, you have not lost at all. For winning is no more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose, uh, jumped to, to run once more. And with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been. Still, he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. And they cheered the winning runs, runners. He crossed the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the falling youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing his race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. He rose each time. And now when things seem hard and dark and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all, and all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit, give up, you're beaten. They still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win the race. May that minister to you in your soul just get back up 
get back in the fight. He didn't say it was going to be easy. We need, a, we need a realistic perspective. We need a durable perspective. And lastly, we need an eternal perspective. That's what chapter 4, verse 18 is about. You know, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. If what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Then chapter 5 talks about, you know, the earthly tent versus the eternal. This earthly tent is not going to last, you know. Might get another four decades out of it, who knows. But it's not going to last. Verse 10 says, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't remember a conference uh, that I've been to where anyone's mentioned judgment. You know, it's not a popular thing to mention, isn't it? But, but this is orthodox Christianity, which is so tempting to, to pull away from it and uh, to compromise and dilute. You know, it's that eternal perspective that keeps so many of our brothers and sisters around the world in the fight, and it should keep us in the game as well. I've got this thing down here. It's a, it's a simple illustration. It's, I think it was uh, Francis Chan. But, you know, he talks about this, this as being my life. And, you know, this is eternity. And, you know, that goes all the way to the wall, that wire. But, you know, it's, that's incomplete, isn't it? Because eternity is forever. And so here we've got my little life here. And, you know, if that's the timeline of my life or your life, you know, we were born here and who knows when it's going to end. But, you know, some of us, it might be shorter than others. But it's easy to think, you know, this bit really matters. And I'm going to do everything for this little bit. Or this little bit or... You know, to improve this little bit. And that's, it's understandable, isn't it? But if we, if we look at our lives in the context of eternity, why don't we make more decisions in the light of all that? Rather than hedging all our bets or putting all our eggs in this basket to improve that little stretch. And some people might look at us if we're passionate for Jesus and giving it all in. They might say, well, you, you, you idiot for, 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 for jeopardizing, you know, your, your, your retirement or whatever and, and uh, being so countercultural and, and it's costly and you're, you, you're giving stuff away that you might need. And, and, and they're sort of saying, you fool. But no, I mean, aren't they, aren't they the fools? Because they're so consumed about this whilst not understanding that it's actually, there's so much more. Just a picture, but it keeps me in the game. And it's so much more than the game, isn't it? And we, all who with unveiled faces, like the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We might be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but we're going to be in there. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, hair falling out, dodgy knee, yet inwardly we're being renewed by day by day. May that be our story. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal reward that far outweighs them all. Far outweighs them all. That's why. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. 
We need a realistic perspective. We need a durable perspective. We need an eternal perspective. You need all those three to last. And I hope this conference has been encouragement to you to, to hang on in there. I want to, us to pray for each other now. And, uh, you know, that, that poem to me moves me because I've fallen loads and uh, I'm tempted to just lie down or tone it down or just settle for normality, whatever that is. But get up. An echo sounded low. Get up. Take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up. It said, you haven't lost at all. Winning is no more than this to rise each time you fall. We've all got our own journeys, our own races in a sense. We're all racing for the common goal. And some of you need a lot of encouragement. Some of you need restoration. There's a whole load of mix now that if the musical guys want to come up. But I think this could be a very important time for a number of us as you respond and we press in. So why don't we all stand up? And I love the honesty of the psalmist. I think I quoted it in one of these talks. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Stand up, have a quick stretch so that we can really now press in intentionally in ministry time. Quick stretch and then why don't you shut your eyes and really focus in.